The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Well, this morning uh, we're starting a new series called His Kingdom Reigns. Um, How many people read Daniel 7? Awesome. How many people had read Daniel 7 before this week? Yeah, a few people. This is, this is not the go-to place in the Bible where you want to go to be encouraged and inspired, that's for sure. Um, but our, our theme for this year is being kingdom. And so we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to be a part of God's kingdom? What does God's kingdom look like? Um, and how do we live in this kingdom? And so uh, we're going to focus particularly on the second half of Daniel, Daniel 7 to 12. We all know the Sunday school stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den and all that. We're not going to do that bit. We're going to do the bit that nobody kind of, they read and they go, I have no idea what this stuff is about. So Daniel 7 to 12 is where we're going to be focusing. Um, this, is a, this, this section of Daniel, this section of the Bible is a preacher's nightmare. Nobody really preaches this stuff. Uh, but I kind of went, you know what, we're doing kingdom. This is about the kingdom of God. We need to engage with this stuff and kind of wrap our heads around it. So this morning is going to feel a lot more like a, a, a teaching kind of lecture because there's a lot of ground I need to cover as an introductory sermon. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll get to actually spend a fair chunk of time in the text. But I need to set up a whole bunch of background stuff before we get to the text. So that when we get to the text, we're getting to the text with the right mindset. And we know what's going on. Because again, we'll see that these sections of Daniel, like Revelation, is the subject of many a conspiracy theory. And if you Google this stuff, good luck to you. God help you. You know, like you just end up in a rabbit warren and you could feel completely lost not knowing what's going on. So hopefully, after today, you'll have some guidelines as to how to read these bits of the Bible. With intelligence, with wisdom, and with great discernment. So let's pray and we'll launch in. Father, thank you for this part of your word. Lord, sometimes we avoid the hard bits because they're hard. But Lord, we want to engage with it as your people because it is your word. And you have something to say to us today uh, in the midst of the chaos that's in our world. And so we pray, will you open our hearts to receive what you have for us today and help me to communicate it faithfully. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, firstly, so just so I can say this up the front. If you're standing there clicking photos of all the slides, don't bother. I'm happy to send these to you. There's a heap of them. Um, so, you know, save you the trouble. Or we'll put them in the church e-newsletter and so you'll get them and then you can have all the slides. So before we launch into the text, we need to understand where we are in history. So we're in this period of history, 6th century. Um, we're in the time of the late Iron Age. Nebuchadnezzar's just come to power uh, in 600. Um, and so that's kind of before the, the rise of Alexander the Great. Um, and we, we're seeing Babylon really coming into power. And then Persia and the, and the Greeks and the Egyptians are kind of all in the mix. So um, these are some of the things that are happening. Babylon replaced Assyria as the superpower in the eastern Mediterranean. Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish which opened the rest of East, um, uh, Syria and Palestine to him. And Jeremiah 46 refers to that incident. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar succeeded his father in 604 BC and ruled until he died in 562. His sons and grandson were 
Yeah, useless in terms of maintaining his power and achievement, which is why they were kind of defeated uh, very soon after. Uh, in uh, 556 BC, uh, an outsider named Nabonidus took the throne. His son Belshazzar, who is mentioned in Daniel, ruled in Babylon until the empire fell to the Persians under Cyrus in 539. So the children of Israel are in captivity. Uh, Daniel 1 tells us that, that Babylon went and pretty much uh, sacked Israel, uh, Judah, Uh, Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed and the exiles were carried off. And Daniel is writing in the context of exile as a a prisoner in captivity, uh, wondering where the promises of God were, that God would be faithful and care for his people. So that's kind of where they're at. Some other things that were happening in the Near East was then ruled for two centuries by the Persians, one of whom was Darius, who's also mentioned in Daniel, uh, who was probably the most well-known. The Persians were overthrown by the Greeks. Uh, Many of you history students would know about Alexander the Great. He ruled over the whole area by 331 BC. And the kingdom divided into two after his death, one ruled by the Ptolemies and the other by the Seleucids. Uh, In 175, the most prominent character, biblically speaking, in this time steps to the stage, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes IV. He came to power and became a very, very significant figure for the Jews and is focus of much of this part of the book of Daniel. Uh, and we'll see how his story features very much in the story of the people of God. So some of the critical issues in reading Daniel, and these are really important to keep in mind, the dating of Daniel. When is it set? When is it written? In the 6th century or the 2nd century? Um, And the reason why there's a lot of debate around this is because of the prophetic material that's here. Um, the, the conservative scholars who certainly, like many of us, believe in the reality of biblical prophecy that God can uh, tell people the future, he knows the future and can tell people the future, will generally date it, generally, not all, in the 6th century. They don't have a problem with Daniel receiving insight about future. But the scholars that kind of go, well, we're not really sure about whether God can do that. They date Daniel in the 2nd century because they argue that there's no way anyone can know with that kind of precision the events of history. And so they're saying Daniel wrote it after the fact, after that things had happened and now he's documenting it. Because they argue that there are some parts in Daniel that weren't accurate in their mind. The the events didn't unfold the way Daniel describes them. And so they say, well, so he's writing here in the second century and he's pretending that he's there. So he's writing accurately, exactly right about all the things that have happened that have already happened. But then the few times he tries to predict the future, he fails. And so that's why they're saying it was written in the second century. So there's a big debate around that. So if it's the 6th century, then it's Daniel. If it's 2nd century, then it's written by an unknown author in the Maccabean period. The main issue, like I mentioned, around this debate is can God reveal the future? And I certainly believe, and I'm hoping you do, that he, yes, he can. Uh, the big questions that Daniel as a book wrestles with are these ones. Where is God in, in, in the concept of people that have been... Uh, they've lost their identity, they've lost their nation, they've lost their religious system, they're really alienated and far from God, and they're asking these big questions, where are you, God? Kind of like what the Psalms do over and over again. Does God really care for his people? Uh, They're in exile, and so they're wondering about this. Where is the real power of the world? Does God still reign? Is he still sovereign? Or do political powers and kings have real power? Is prophecy real and possible? And why is there evil and suffering and profound questions that we still struggle with and wrestle with if i was to say to you from your knowledge of daniel what would be the main theme of daniel what's the big idea of the book as a whole what would you say 
And you think about the, in the lion's den and the fiery furnace and all this stuff that we're reading. As you even read through Daniel 7, what would you say is the main theme that comes out? Faithfulness, yes? Omnipotence, yep. Any other thoughts? God's authority, yes? Trust, surrender, yeah, trust, faithfulness, yep. Yeah, all, all, all of those things. From, from a God point of view, it's really about the supremacy of God. It's really about showing that God is bigger than anything else, sovereign above all things. And from the human point of view, it's the question of, well, do we trust in this God? Do we really believe in this God? So, yep, absolutely. Uh, one Bible commentator, Tremper Longman, that I'll quote quite often, he says this, in spite of the theme, is in spite of present appearances, this is really what Daniel is about, in spite of present appearances, God is in control, and he will overcome the seemingly invulnerable or undefeatable evil forces of the day. That's really what the whole book of Daniel is about, in a nutshell. So before we, again, move into the text, we need to think a little bit about the difference between Western literature and Eastern literature. And this is really, really important. Uh, what, what, what we're familiar with and accustomed to is literature that tends to be linear, it's structured, it's ordered, there's a beginning, a middle, and a conclusion. That's generally Western literature. But Eastern literature is often not like that. And I've learned when you go to places like Kenya or Sri Lanka to preach, you've got to preach a little bit differently. You know, we're very much used to a logical, systematic presentation. But in the East, it's a lot more about stories and it's a lot more circular. And you kind of kind of got to keep coming around to the main point you're trying to make. And so Eastern literature tends to be a lot more poetic and a lot more stories. And there are things that are said in parallel and kind of like a spiral. It kind of goes around and around. And so a good way to visualize it, and there's lots of visuals today for all you visual learners, it's that Eastern literature is like a spiral staircase. It kind of pivots around a central point. And so if you think about reading Daniel with that central point of God's supremacy and how Daniel just keeps coming around and around and around to just that one thing, and he keeps saying the same thing over and over again in different ways that run in parallel with each other. So the structure of Daniel, and this is really interesting, Daniel is not written chronologically. It's not written in a structured, linear format. And as you can see, there's a pattern here that Daniel wants us to grab a hold of. So chapter 1 begins with the exile and God's people. And you'll, see, you'll start to see the parallel structure and the way he's doing it. Chapter 2 is dreaming of the end of human kingdoms, which parallels what we're looking at today in Daniel 7. There's another dream of the end of human kingdoms. Uh, chapter 3 is living in two kingdoms, that we're in the kingdom of God and we're in the kingdom of this world. Um, and then the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar, the humbling of King Belshazzar, which is kind of the pivotal point. Then we're back to living in two kingdoms. And then you see chapter 7 kind of is a transition chapter before we get to the exile of God's people again in chapter 8. And then questions and answers and prayer and a whole bunch of stuff that's nowhere else in the rest of Daniel. Now if you notice, the shift that happens in chapter 7. So we've got stories in the first six chapters. And then 7 shifts. It, it's a different kind of literature. And if you read 7 to 12 like you're reading 1 to 6, you're going to end up in all kinds of crazy places. So you need to recognize that there's a shift in the structure. And the way Daniel makes this really, really clear is in the way the language is working. Notice also that Daniel is written in two different languages. It begins with a Hebrew section in chapter 1. And then, interestingly, and no scholar knows why, 
it goes into Aramaic from chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 7. And then it changes back to Hebrew again. So chapter 7 is kind of a pivotal passage because it marks the transition of the kind of literature. It goes from kind of narrative genre to apocalyptic genre we'll talk about. And also it overlaps with the use of Aramaic. And so it's this transitional shift that connects with the first six chapters but kind of moves in a different direction but keeps the same theme going all the way through. So that's a bit about the structure. So let's talk about apocalyptic literature because that's what we're dealing with. Daniel is an example of that. The book of Revelation is the most well-known example of apocalyptic literature. And just like we would read poetry different to a newspaper article, we need to understand what's happening in apocalyptic so we can read it correctly and interpret it correctly. So one definition by a guy called uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, Biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy. Now that's important because a lot of people read apocalyptic like it is prophecy. There are similarities, but there are significant differences. So keep that in mind. It's a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom. It's the long definition on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. I love that. That's a really good definition. So you'll get this in in the slide so that you don't have to memorize it. I'm not going to test you on it next week. But there's a lot of things there. It's kind of like prophecy. It's written to people who are going through certain things that God wants to speak to. And it is about the end of the ages, and it's communicated in really weird ways. Those are the main things that you need to keep in mind. So, breaking it all down. Apocalyptic, the word means revelation. So in in revelation, it's really saying apocalyptic. Um, That's what the word actually means. It's related to prophecy as future-oriented, but it's distinct. It's different. Uh, The main focus is future and end times. And what's interesting is that biblical apocalyptic is different to other types of apocalyptic. So apocalyptic literature existed outside of the Bible. It wasn't just in the Bible. But the general thrust of the apocalyptic literature outside of the Bible was negative. It's pessimistic. It's doom and gloom and fatalistic. uh, And uh, it's like cataclysmic, the end of the world kind of stuff. Now, the biblical apocalyptic literature has some of that, but there is a a shard of hope and light and positivity because it's looking forward to the day when God brings a final end to all that's evil in the world. And God ultimately and finally rescues His faithful people and God ushers in His kingdom. And so even though there is that sense of the end of the world is coming, it's from an expectant, hopeful, positive, eager perspective rather than a dreadful, fearful, cataclysmic perspective, if that makes sense. The other thing to keep in mind is apocalyptic is metaphor-rich language and it is mysterious. And these are important things to keep in mind. There's bizarre, unusual imagery, symbols, numbers, animals. Um, and another significant thing about apocalyptic is that it's mediated through a, a secondary source. Now, that's one of the big differences between prophetic and apocalyptic literature. Often in prophetic literature, God speaks to the individual directly. They hear an audible sound or God um, speaks directly to them in some way. Apocalyptic is usually mediated either through a dream or a vision or often through a heavenly messenger. 
And you'll recall when you read John that John is often having conversations with angelic beings. That's how apocalyptic literature usually takes place, through a mediated uh, source. It's in, one of the intentions of apocalyptic is to evoke powerful feelings. That's why in your connect groups this week, I asked you to think about, when you read this, how does it make you feel? Now, in the connect groups that we were a part of, the answer was afraid, fearful, dreadful, nervous, anxious. They're all the things that we will find in this, in this chapter. And it's meant to do that. It's meant to evoke strong feelings in you. But ultimately, it's designed to comfort God's people who are going through crisis and persecution. It's, again, a feeling. It's meant to assure you. It's meant to give you some sense of peace and security and confidence, even in the face of you know, present and future challenges. So, some cautions. When you're interpreting apocalyptic literature, be reserved in interpreting the images. And this is where a lot of people go wrong. Uh, if you look at a lot of popular stuff, uh, a lot of stuff on Google, they, they tend to interpret every image literalistically. And that's where you kind of run into all kinds of problems. The point of apocalyptic is not to get lost in the details, but to focus on the main points, the big picture. Uh, the main message of what God wants to say to his people rather than pursuing each detail and then trying to find a historical connection to each of those details. So Trample Longman again has this really helpful warning. He says to approach this material, apocalyptic literature, as if it demands or even invites a literal interpretation is wrong-headed. He's saying you're heading in the wrong direction. If you're looking to apocalyptic to be like a historical roadmap, you're heading in the wrong direction. It is wrong to say that we interpret apocalyptic literally except when it is absurd, absurd to do so. Now, again, in my ministry, I've come across people when they were talking about revelation. That's the argument they use. That the way to interpret in, uh, Revelation is to read it literally unless it seems really weird to interpret literally. Well, Tremper Longman, who's you know, very well versed in apocalyptic literature, would say, well, that's the wrong way to go about it because it's misunderstood the essence of what apocalyptic literature is meant to be. Here's a helpful illustration. Many parts of the Bible we can read like going to a library and grabbing a book and reading it as a factual documental statement whether it's a historic book or a scientific book or whatever it is. There are parts of the Bible we can read that way. But when we come to apocalyptic, if we read it that way, like a history book, it's going to lead us to error. A better way to think about apocalyptic is like this, like being in an art gallery. Now, when you go to an art gallery, how do you view the pieces of art on the wall? Do you walk away saying, this thing over here I know means this. And when the writer, when the painter painted this, this is what that represents. And this is, no, you just stand back and you look at it and you go, how does this make me feel? What was the painter trying to evoke and create in me? And you marvel at its beauty and you wonder and you go away to the next art piece and you go, wow, this, this, that's how we're supposed to read apocalyptic. Does that make sense? All right, so these are all the things to keep in mind. So let's talk now about Daniel 7. So here's an overview. This begins the apocalyptic section. And in some ways, it is the most well-known part of this apocalyptic section for two reasons. One, that it talks about some weird, weird beasts. Um, and these beasts have been talked about for years and years and years. And it also talks about the cloud rider. Um, and my, so my message is entitled, The Cloud Rider, because... The son of man who rides the clouds, you know, like the feature. Think about Days of Elijah. You know, for some of you, you know that song. 
right? Behold, he comes riding on the clouds. That's why it's so well known. There's, there's bits in here that are very, very familiar to us. It's interestingly the most frequently quoted and alluded to in the New Testament and also one of the most bizarre and enigmatic and debated sections of the Old Testament. There's debates about most of the things in chapter 7. In spite of all of that debate, what I want you to hear is this, that the central message that God and Daniel are trying to communicate to us is crystal clear. And that's just that God's in control. Now, I want to give you a bit of a warning. For the next five weeks as we do this series, you're going to hear that theme over and over again. God's in control. And I hope you don't sit here and go, not that again. Well, that's what God is doing here in this. I can't tell you what, what's not there. And maybe there's a reason why God spends this many chapters telling us this one truth, I'm in control. And maybe we just need to listen to it with a different heart. And so you might not get new application every week because Daniel's got just the one point he's trying to make to people going through persecution. God's in control. And maybe we just need to hear that again and again and again in our circumstance and situation. Uh, intended effect is also clear. It is to give comfort and hope to God's faithful people facing oppression. All right, so the cloud rider. The big idea um, is this. Evil may seem as if it has the upper hand, but that is a temporary illusion. Better to stay faithful and suffer than to fall in with evil and experience God's ultimate judgment. So that's really the big message of Daniel uh, chapter 7, and we will keep coming back to it over and over and over again. Now, when you read Daniel, you would have probably found that there were three sections and the first section is verses 1 to 8, where it talks about the vision of the four beasts. And then the second section is from 9 to 14, um, which is the vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Um, and sandwiched in the middle of that is this little section about the, the, the little horn. And then the last section is the interpretation of this vision in, in 7.15 to 28, where Daniel approaches one of the angelic beings that are there and says, well, what's going on here? T tell me, uh, help me understand what's going on. So there's a, a lot of repetition in this section, uh, repeating the things we've seen in the first section as Daniel recounts this angel about the stuff he's seen and he's trying to make sense and understand it. So those are the, the three main sections that are going on. So in each of these sections, rather than getting bogged down in the detail of the what, what I want to focus on this morning is the why. Why is this here? Why did God think it was important to tell us this? What feeling does he want us to wrestle with and grapple with and engage with this morning rather than just thinking about all of the details? Now, for sure, we can't do Daniel 7 and not talk about some of the debate about some of this stuff. So we're going to engage with it, but my focus is more for you to think about why is this here and what is God trying to tell me in the midst of all of this weird imagery that's going on? So I want to suggest to you that the first thing that I think this passage is wanting to tell us, and in the first section this comes out really, really clearly, is to be realistic in the face of horror. To be realistic. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the things that we see right from the start, in the first year of Belshazzar, King Babylon, so we're going back in time to chapter, even before chapter 5, because chapter 5 recounts the last days of Belshazzar. So this is going back to the first year. And Daniel is asleep and he has this vision. And the first thing he sees is the sea. The sea being churned up. Now, for a Hebrew and for many other people actually in the ancient Near East, the sea conjures up images of terror and horror. It's the, it was a scary place. It represented chaos. 
It represented things that were uncontrollable. It represented things that were fierce and powerful and intimidating. But more than that, it also represented a thing that threatened created order. Not just in the biblical account where God creates order out of chaos and sets boundaries for the sea. Many other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myths also have this idea where the sea represented a force that attacked the creative forces of nature. So straight away, we're thrust into this scene that would have invoked terror and fear and great, great concern. So there's nothing here to make people feel like, hey, it's okay, relax. Daniel is thrust into a scenario that immediately is going to be something that's going to be very, very controversial, very, very confronting to him. And then we are introduced to the four beasts. So let's talk about these beasts. The first one. Lion with wings. Now, again, you'll notice that other than the second beast, which is the bear, all of the others are this hybrid. Again, representing these creatures that are somehow a violation of God's creative order. They're strange. They're weird. For a Hebrew, these images would have been repulsive because they were representing things that God said very clearly in the Lord, don't mix Right? Don't mix your grains, don't mix your animals, don't even mix the fabrics on your clothes. And here we have beasts that are mixed, that are corrupted, that are you know, hybrids, and that represent things that are not just terrifying, but repulsive as well. Um, so the first one is a lion with wings. Uh, the second one is a bear that's standing up on one side. It's got three ribs in its mouth, um, all of them coming out of the churning sea. The third one is a really weird beast. It's got four heads. It's a leopard with four heads and two wings. Uh, and most commentators believe that this represents speed uh, in, in two ways, like doubly fast, and that's moving in all four directions, which represents the four heads. And then the last one is really, really interesting because it's not even an animal. And throughout the text in the first section that we're looking at and in the last section, it, it's brought out over and over again that this beast was different. You notice in the text that in verse 4, it says the first was like a lion. Verse 5, it says the second one was like a bear. In verse 6, it says, and I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. Now look what happens in verse 7. After that, in my vision, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. There's no like. Daniel is seeing something that he can't compare to anything. He doesn't know what this is. It's kind of animal-like because we're told that it's got large iron teeth and later on we're told it's got bronze claws. But really, that's it. I, I don't need, Daniel said, I don't even know how to describe this thing. And so we want to be careful that we're not saying, okay, this beast means this. Because even Daniel is saying, oh, I don't, this is really different. And we'll see as we go, this beast is the one that intrigued Daniel the most. He's like, he's so confused and he's troubled by what he's seen. So what I want to you know, point out to you is some of the debate. So there's two main views here. I mean, what are these beasts representing? And some of the scholars say that it's Babylon was the first one. I think most scholars are agreed that the lion with wings represents Babylon. And the reason they say that is because they say it represents Nebuchadnezzar who, was, who went crazy, beast-like for a while, but then was restored to human-like condition. And so this lion that we're told uh, is given the mind of a human, they say, well, that 
clearly represents Nebuchadnezzar. And I think most commentators would go, yep, we can safely say that that's Nebuchadnezzar. The debate is what the second and the third one mean. Do they mean different empires or the joined empire of the Medes and the Persians? So that's where the debate is. Because then the, the fourth one will depend on which one you say. So if you say separate, it's media, is uh, the, the bear, or per, and Persia is the leopard, then Alexander the Great and Greece would be the fourth beast. But if you say Medo-Persia is the bear, and the three ribs represent the three empires that they overthrew when they came to power, which again commentators point out, then the fourth beast, the third beast will be Greece, and then the fourth one will be Rome. But here's the, the problem with both of these views, that no matter which way you go, when you get to the fourth beast and you get to what happens to the fourth beast, it, it's about the Son of Man coming and destroying the fourth beast and, and bringing about the kingdom of God. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So whether you go with Greece or whether you go with Rome, at best it can only be a typology. At best it can only be a, a first installment of a future reality that's still ahead. So locking it in and being so definite is not necessary because the point that it's trying to make is that the better way to read this is that really it's, it's, it's a theological statement that Daniel is trying to make. And that is that evil kingdoms will succeed one after another until the end of time. Whichever ones you want to put it, the, every kingdom that will come will just get worse and worse and worse and more and more evil. And we read here the devastation and the destruction. Every human empire is fixed on conquest. It's fixed on using humanity to, to get more territory. It's fixed on conflict. It's fixed on destruction and devastation regardless of the human collateral. And so the, the, the point of this is to say be realistic about human government. And our culture wants to say that we're evolving, we're getting better, our technological advances, our, the way we govern, democracy, we're more civilized now. God says, yeah, you're kidding yourself. The truth of the matter is that human government, even at its best, is beastly. And it will continue to be beastly. And every succeeding empire and every succeeding government will continue to get worse and more and more beastly until the last one. And then the end will come. And it's really about the conflict between this world system and about God's kingdom. And Daniel really is about the clash of two kingdoms. The point, very simple. Things are going to get worse. You think coronavirus and the toilet paper shortage is bad? Well, Daniel 7 would say, be realistic. It's going to get worse. Particularly, and here's the hard part for us to hear, for the people of God particularly for the people of God. One writer said, and I love this, Barbara Tuckman, she said, revolutions produce other men, not new men. Other men, not new men. And that's what the Bible is saying. All right, I've got two minutes to do the rest of the Daniel. Here we go. The second thing that the writer wants us to hear is security. He wants us to be confident. And you notice in verse 9, the scene is interrupted. Daniel's seeing this vision, and it's interrupted. Now he's showing a different thing. It's almost like God is saying, Daniel, I know this is scary. I know this is freaking you out. I know you're troubled and you're anxious about this fourth beast. But stop for a minute and look up. Look up and see this other reality that's there. Put your, put your security in the reign of God. And we see God as the ancient of days. He was there before, um, before these beasts came, and he will be there after these beasts are gone. 
He will be the one that is seated. He's not kind of restless or anxious. He's in control. He's the one that's judging. He's white with hair, which represents wisdom. So God does not look like that. All right, we're talking apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic. But what is the symbol communicating? His white hair communicates wisdom and and ageness, that he's been there for ages. His name communicates the ancient of days that's been around forever and ever and will be around forever and ever. He's seated and he's in a courtroom where he's judging and he's judging legally and according to the book because the books are opened it says verse 10 tells us that there was a river of fire flowing which represents judgment throughout the bible when we say fire fall down we need to be careful what we mean by that you know we do mean the holy spirit's fire but you know fire usually in the bible it represents god's judgment so here's god the ancient of days seated on the throne in control in judgment his throne is flaming with fire and there are uh, Daniel does hear what, what sounds like infinity in mathematics. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000. Those are the biggest numbers Daniel knows. He's trying to say, look at all these people that are around the Ancient of Days. That's where our security is. That's where our confidence is. It's kind of like, if I wanted to illustrate it, you know the story in 2 Corinthians 6 where the Arameans surround uh, Elisha and his servant. And the servant goes out and he looks at the Arameans and he's freaked out, totally freaked out. And Elisha said, prays this prayer, God, open his eyes, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes and he sees what? The armies of heaven. That's what is happening here. Where Dan, God is saying to Daniel, Daniel, you're freaked out. You know that song, this is how I fight my battle? It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by him, by you. That's what Daniel is trying to communicate. That's what God is trying to communicate. Look up, Daniel. Change your perspective. See the reality of the heavenly kingdom. And then the son of man. Now, I don't know what Daniel thought when he read this. Who is this son of man? Well, clearly he's a human figure, which is very different to the beastly figures we've seen. Because he's the ultimate human who is submitted to the will of the ancient of days. He's also the one that is divine because riding on clouds was only something that God did. Right? Only God rode on the clouds. And here, two, two Psalms talk about it. Sing to God, sing praise to His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds. The Lord is the one who wraps Himself in light and He makes the clouds His chariot, the cloud rider. Who is this figure? I'm sure Daniel was sitting there going, hang on, I'm a monotheist. I believe in one God. Ancient of days is on the throne. Who is this other guy? He's a human figure and he's riding the clouds. That's something only God did. And look at what it tells us about him. Everybody worships him. Now that's something that no angel was allowed to receive. So he's a human but a divine figure. And what we're told is that this divine figure will destroy every human evil. And notice in verse 11 and 12, Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man is interrupted by this little horn, and it's almost intentional. He sandwiches the little horn between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man to make it really, really small, how small the little horn really is. And he's destroyed in a moment by the Son of Man. The point? God is in control. God is on the throne. The Son of Man is has vanquished, has conquered, and every tribe and tongue and nation will praise him and worship him. And we're told in the third section that even rulers will worship him. Every human authority, no matter how evil, how strong, how undefeatable, how powerful it might seem, will bow the knee to the Son, the one like the Son of Man. Last point, hurrying to a close. It's to give us 
a realistic view of the horrors of history, yes. It's to give us security in the, 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 the reign of God over all creation, over all of history, the ancient of days. And lastly, it is to give us hope in the triumph of God, in the triumph of God. In this last section, two things come into the focus. The little horn, he makes an appearance. Daniel is so troubled by this little horn and by this new group of people, the holy people of the Most High. And there's a lot of debate as to who these holy people are. Are they angels or are they God's faithful people? And you can read and make up your own mind about that, but really it can be both. Because in Daniel, that phrase in the Hebrew is often interpreted as an angelic heavenly messenger. But when you read it, these holy people are reigning with Christ. These holy people are now going to be persecuted more than ever before. How do angels get persecuted? I don't know. But regardless of whether you go with angels or whether you go with God's faithful people, the point is that you're on the winning side. That God's hosts, God's people win in the end. And so whether you think the holy people are angels or whether you think holy people are us, the faithful followers of God, that's the point. Hope in the triumph of God. You're on the winning side. So the little horn, we need to spend a little bit of time on it. Often people interpret this as being the Antichrist. Or they say that, you know, like the, the ten horns that represent the ongoing Roman Empire and one of those horns will dislodge three and a whole bunch of theories you'll find online if you want to. The point is that this horn is going to be the last human ruler and he'll be the worst human ruler. Worst in the destruction he causes. Worst in the oppression of God's people. Worst in his arrogance. Worst in his insult to God in his insolence against God, his defiance against God. I don't think we've seen that yet. And here's why. Because the devil doesn't know when that day is. So in every generation, he has to have a little horn ready. Makes sense, right? That's why John says, there'll be many antichrists, rather than looking for one. So how do we know when it's the antichrist, capital T? Well, he'll be the last one. When Jesus comes, it will be the last one. And that will be what makes it the Antichrist. So why get hung up on all the conspiracy theories? Hope in the victory of God. That's the point that Daniel wants us to make. All right, so some concluding thoughts. Not bad. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the government? Are you trusting in corporations? Are you trusting in the health system right now? Who is your ultimate trust? Are you trusting in the ancient of days? That, that's the question. Where, where are you looking? Where are you putting your confidence? And if you're telling yourself the next government will be better, you know, like we got so excited when Scott Morrison came to power because we think, yes, he's the answer. Well, Daniel would say, hold on a second. Be careful. Be careful. Be real. Don't put your trust in human government. Second one is where, where are you focusing your attention? Are you consumed by what's happening in the here and now? And it's hard not to be. It's hard not to be, particularly when you go into the grocery stores and shelves are empty and there's people panicking. and all kind of, What Daniel reminds us is that you might experience pain, but you don't need to panic. You might be afraid, but you don't need to be frantic. Put your hope in God. Be secure in Him. Get your eyes above the circumstances. Look to the hills. Look to the heavens and let God reveal to you the, the vista of heaven where the Ancient of Days is seated in court intercede. You know, one of the things that stand out for me in this passage is that Daniel is troubled, so troubled about this vision, and yet it wasn't about his time. 
It was about the future. And he was so troubled by what was going to happen to God's people. So troubled. Are we that troubled? We, we live in such a comfortable environment. But the reality is some of these people, our brothers and sisters, are living now in the fourth, fourth beast time. Right now. That's their reality. Does it concern us? Like Daniel, do we, are we troubled? Are we moved to prayer and to intercede for them? That's a challenge. Because one day it's going to happen to all of us and we, I, we don't know whether it's in our generation or the next. Or but right now people are living this horror. Let's think and pray and intercede for them. And lastly, work towards bringing the kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom of the fourth beast is in every single human heart because it's Satan. He's the master of the fourth beast, really. And thank God that Jesus has rescued us from the fourth beast, beast within. But that same fourth beast is in our governments, is in our corporations, bringing destruction and slavery and bondage and corruption and injustice and violence and all of those things. As God's people, I believe God is calling us to act in that space to represent the kingdom of God and to move back and to push back the works of the darkness so that we can even now begin to see the kingdom of God ushering. What is our confidence that the kingdom of God will come? with Jesus. It's the Son of Man. And Mark tells us, Jesus quoted that verse to himself. He says, I am the Son of Man. I am that figure in Daniel. And I have won the victory. And I believe that when Jesus, it says in Daniel that he, he rides the clouds of heaven to the ancient of death, I believe that's the ascension, not the second coming. It's when Jesus goes to the Father after the death and resurrection and ascended in triumph and victory because that was the defining moment when God dealt a death blow to the kingdom of darkness, to the fourth beast. It's the difference between D-Day and V-Day. That's D-Day, when Normandy was invaded by the Allied army, and it, everyone knew that was it. That was the day. The, the battle was won. But V-Day came nearly a year later, 11 months later. That's where we're living in, between D-Day and V-Day. But D-Day has happened. Jesus has won. Colossians says that he has destroyed the powers of the enemy. And that victory is being rolled out and one day will be consummated when Jesus comes back. And you and I are in that in-between zone doing mop-up work, clean-up work, where we're advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that your word gives us to encourage us to build up our faith. Lord, I pray for, for those who've been feeling unsettled and restless about the things that are happening in our culture right now. And I do, Lord, lift up our brothers and sisters who are living in the reality of increase, increasing and increasing persecution. Lord, we pray, will you strengthen them? Will you encourage them through your word? Lord, this passage, we read it and we can kind of take it or leave it because it doesn't really speak to anything we're going through really right now. But Lord, this passage can bring so much hope and security and confidence for our brothers and sisters. Will you encourage them? Will you protect them? Will you give them the strength to remain faithful, to not give up on Jesus, to remember that they're on the winning side? Lord, we pray for us as we go into this world that is characterized by darkness and evil, that Lord is going to get worse and worse and worse. Help us to be salt and light to make a kingdom difference that will point people to the Son of Man that will come to make everything right. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.